Not knowing what to expect, uh, and uh, by the way, thinking that you do know what to expect, is a recipe for disaster. Uh, case in point, let me just pick something very simple. Uh, vacation planning. Vacation planning. Let's say uh, you pack in your bags a swimsuit when what is needed is a snowsuit. Uh, let's say you are packed and ready for, for uh, three days of travel when in actually what you need is ten days worth of stuff. Let's say uh, you go off to wherever this, this uh, destination is thinking that it's an all-expenses-included paid sort of package deal, and you get there only to discover, no, it's all going to be out of your pocket. My guess is you're in for a rude awakening with all those, those things, uh, not knowing what to expect, not knowing what to expect can lead to uh, disappointment, um, disillusionment, distress, and not just with something as benign uh, as a vacation plan, but something uh, certainly far grander and of a much greater, weightier importance, and that would be the grandest, greatest pursuit of all, following Jesus. Not understanding, not having our expectations right, failing to grapple with what all of that entails can set us up for disappointment and distress and even disillusionment. And Jesus would not have us be such. And so he speaks, and he continues to speak. And we have a record of that here in Matthew chapter 8. So if you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me. Matthew 8, verses 14 to 22. Uh, we are moving on progressively, slowly but surely, through this uh, sermon series, teaching series on the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is the first of the four Gospels that we have. It's the first book in the New Testament. So if you uh, can, go ahead and find our place, Matthew 8, starting in verse 14, and I'm going to read on down through verse 22. Hear now God's word. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Well, I think we need to pray. Let's do that. Lord, there is uh, some stark, hard stuff here. Uh, there is some stuff that, that my goodness, we're, we're glad to read of miracles, and that sounds all wonderful. And then we hear these words, and that brings us up short. We don't know quite, quite really what to make of any of this. We're, we, we aren't accustomed to seeing such things, and we're not sure we even want to hear such things. But both come from you. 
the powerful words and the powerful deeds. Um, so we have to hear. We have to see. Um, if the Son of Man, if God in the flesh, if you, the Christ, the Messiah, are speaking and doing such things, we need to grapple with them. And especially not just their implications for that moment when they happen, but for us today. And so we ask that you would help us. We ask that you indeed would help us to grapple with these things and their broader, greater implications, but also for them at the very personal, individual level too. In your name we pray. Amen. Captain James Cook. Captain James Cook was the great 18th century maritime explorer. Uh, mapped so, so much of the Pacific Ocean. He was a cartographer in some ways, one of the best. The maps that he prepared still to this day are admired for their detail. But he was not just a great cartographer. Uh, at his heart, James Cook was also something of an anthropologist. He was deeply concerned for the impact that his sailors, as they moved from island to island, would have upon the Pacific peoples. He was concerned about the impact that their, uh, the contact that they would have with those other cultures might have upon those other cultures. And so he decided on a policy of, of not engagement, but just observation, of just holding back and, and, and engaging with them and interacting with them as little as possible. Something of a precursor, I suppose, Star Trek fans, to the Prime Directive. It's a noble idea. It was a noble idea. And it failed miserably. Case in point, at the very end of Cook's life, what actually led to the end of Cook's life, uh, when he took this noble idea, this noble pursuit, and, uh, well, they ran into trouble on his, I think it was his second trip to the Hawaiian Islands, and one of his boats was stolen from him. So then Cook decides, and this is where the non-interference thing gets a little fuzzy, because he captures one of the local chiefs. I'm not sure that this is really not interfering, in order to, I guess, you know, have some, some, some um, bargaining chips or whatever to get his boat back. A fight ensues. Captain James Cook is shot dead, dies on the beach. Didn't go so well. Noble failure, at the very least. Jesus would not have us to make such a mistake. He would have us to be sure in our resolve, but also clear on his call. And his is a call to discipleship, to follow him. To, it is a call of exclusive, lifelong, wholehearted commitment to following him. Let me say that again. It is a call to discipleship. That means therein it is an exclusive, lifelong wholehearted commitment to follow him. It is, it is a call that actually every one of us was made for. Now you may not really, you may like, I'm not even a Christian, but I'm telling you this is what you were made for. You are made to follow the God who made you. You are made to follow as a disciple of Jesus. Just as surely as wings were made to fly, just as surely as the sun was made to shine. We were all made to follow him. That said, it is not easy. It is fraught 
with difficulty. It is demanding. This call to discipleship, following Jesus, is demanding, far more demanding than we know, and we need to weigh that if, in fact, we are to follow him. Do you see? This call is demanding, daunting, difficult, and he's saying you need to weigh that. You need to weigh that if you are to follow me. Now we see the the daunting, demanding, difficulty, all of that. I didn't mean to come up with that alliteration. It just came out of me. But but you you see that here in the text very clearly in in three things. And it's there in your outline. It's there in the bulletin. And these three things. First, this picture that we're given of discipleship. Secondly, this great, uh, we'll get to this in a minute, astounding hope for the disciple. And then finally also in just how it's laid out very plainly, the cost. The cost of discipleship. These three things wedded together give us a very clear picture rather of what it is to follow him and the daunting nature of it. So let's look at these in turn. First, the picture. Now this happened in time and space. Don't Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying or about to say. This is a real event. It happened in time and space. This is history that we're reading of here. And yet at the same time, The way Matthew records it and interweaves it in everything else, it's clear there's an intentionality here. That there's meant to be a lesson. There's something that we're meant to to learn of what this call to to follow Jesus looks like. Verses 14 through 15. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. So what's going on here? We have this need, this great need, uh, a healing, and then a response. I want to take the, uh, the need, the healing first. So there's this house there in Capernaum, and Peter, he shares it with his brother Andrew. And, and Peter, he's married. We, we don't know really much about that relationship and, and who was, what his wife's name was, Mrs. Peter, I guess. But, but all we know is that he's married because he has a mother-in-law. By definition, they're in, you're married. And so he takes his mother-in-law into the house and to, to care for her. Well, she is struck down with a fever, likely what was known in those days as lake fever, likely what we know today as malaria. High fever in that time is a dangerous thing. That's the need. Okay? His mother-in-law is struck down, laid out with likely malaria. And by the way, I should note this, that in that time, in that culture, fever was regarded as disease itself. Not a symptom of disease, but disease. And so because of that, Jewish law forbade the touching of someone with fever. What does Jesus do? Without even being asked, nobody says a thing, he steps forward and touches her hand. And it's not just, we don't just read, and a few days later she came around, but rather instantly she is healed. And we know that because of her response. She gets up and and is moving around the house and caring for him and waiting on him, which then takes me to the response. Now again, I want to reiterate this point. This is something that really happened. This is a woman who was sick and, and in dire need. Jesus comes in and raises her, and at the same time it is also a picture, what I would argue is a sign, something like what you read in John's Gospel, a living parable for us of what discipleship looks like. So she is Laid out, you understand, on the verge of death, a deadly infirmity. She is helpless and hopeless. And she is raised to serve. 
She is raised to serve. I would argue that that is a picture of following Jesus. That is a picture in and of itself of what the call to discipleship looks like. If you are a Christian, if you are a disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus, you must know this of yourself. You have been raised to serve him. You have been raised to serve him. What shape would that take? What would it mean? What does it look like? I would say very simply this. Just know, You need to begin with knowing that of yourself. You've been raised to serve him. As Paul would say in Galatians, the old has gone, the new has come. Your old life, the priorities and the plans, the aims and the aspirations, the direction, the goals, all of that, is past. You have been made and now are able to live in a new way. You have a new identity in Christ. You this morning can be assured of the Father's love. You have been indwelled by His Spirit. Set free, emboldened, with all that He has done, is doing, and promises yet to do in your life. The old title of Master that you once held when you thought of yourself, gone, for you have taken up the mantle of servant. His. His servant. That is who you are. That is the call to follow him. So again, I just would say this picture shows us something of the demanding nature of this call that we need to weigh that we would understand what it means to follow him, which then takes us into the second point. This great call is so weighty, it is so, as I said earlier, daunting, difficult, all those other things. It is so weighty in its nature and its implication, it demands a great hope to hold it up, to carry us as we follow him. And that hope is what we see here in the following verses, verses 16 and 17. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So, what's happening here? Um, Matthew uh, paints with broad strokes. You know, just a, a couple verses before, he gives us kind of a, a, a something of an in-depth understanding of Jesus' engagement with one person, but now with broader strokes in just one verse, he kind of describes what happens with a whole bunch of people. But that's meant to take us someplace. For these further miracles, it's, it's not surprising this happens, right? This is the little town of Capernaum. Word spreads of what has happened, of what happened. We looked at this uh, last week, the, the, the um, healing of the centurion's servant. The word is spreading about that. Now the word is spreading, again, in the context of this little town of, of Peter's mother-in-law now having been healed. It's, so it's really no surprise that the word is spreading and that people are coming. The sick are looking to be healed. The possessed are looking to be set free. And Jesus cares for them just as they need to be. You see that the sick are healed, 
And those who are possessed, the spirits are sent out. They're cared for in ways that only he... Is, well, it's, it's worth knowing, I, I should tell you this, that archaeologists have found the place where this likely all happened. There's a site there in, in, in Capernaum that you can go to today where over the course of centuries, several churches were built on this site going all the way back to the early, early centuries. In fact, we know that there was a place that by the latter part of the first century was known by the locals as Peter's House. And by mid-first century, it was a gathering place for the church there in Capernaum. Little wonder, right, if it happens in that place, that then over time, people would use that place for those purposes. Well, anyway, in that place, these miracles took place. And in that place, Matthew notes that we see prophecy, ancient prophecy, being fulfilled. Um, now, it's worth noting here, this is uh, verse 17, it's worth noting here that the way Matthew quotes this is just a little bit different than what Isaiah actually, how it reads in our English Bibles. Now, I'll explain the variation there because it's actually really not, well, let, I don't want it to be confusing, I want it to be encouraging when you understand what's going on here. So, turn with me, keep your thumb there in Matthew 8, let's go to Isaiah 53. Now, if you're having trouble finding Isaiah, that's a really big book in the Old Testament. So head a few big books to the right of the Psalms. And the Psalms are sort of in the middle of your Bible. Head to the right, you'll hit Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, I just want to read one half of one verse, because that's what Matthew was quoting here. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, we read, Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. But yet we read in Matthew 8, verse 17, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now he's clearly hearkening back to Isaiah 53, and yet the, the wording is a, is a little different. I'm sure you picked up on that. And the reason is at least twofold. One, you need to understand that Matthew is writing in Greek, and he's looking back to the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew that Isaiah is writing in. And what he recognizes is as he is doing this translation, and as he is doing this, recognizing the full context of Isaiah 53, of the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Christ that was to come, he recognizes that there is a fuller range of the verbs here that goes beyond just the way you could say um, griefs and sorrows that can include under its umbrella illnesses and diseases. Now, why is that significant? What is the implication of that? Let me just say this, that our sins, our sorrows, our griefs, our sicknesses, our illnesses, our everything, all of that is complex and it is inter interrelated. Sometimes you can see a direct causal relationship. Sometimes you can see my suffering, my sorrow is a direct result of my sin. And that happens. Sometimes it's not so neat and easy. Sometimes because of what others did to me, or you. And sometimes you can't even figure it out that cleanly. Sometimes, but always, always, you can trace the relationship of, our, of, of suffering back to the fall, back to the entry of sin into this world, and its ruinous effects, polluting effects upon everything, everything, everything. As far as the curse is found, it is found everywhere. 
And what Isaiah is saying and what Matthew is saying is that Jesus has come as the great Savior to deal with the root of everything. All of the sorrow, all of the suffering, all of the sickness, all of the illness, all of the everything. He has come to make all things new. That's who this Jesus is. And we see it coming out. We see proof of it in what he is doing there in the, just right there in that little house in Capernaum in the healing of these people and the setting of the possessed free. Just who is he? The Savior. The long-awaited, much need for, much longed for Savior. That's our hope. That's the hope of discipleship. And that hope supports, that great hope supports this great call. Or if I can put it another way, you can, you can see, you get a glimpse of, an indication of how weighty, how difficult, how daunting this call to discipleship must be if it takes that kind of hope to bully it. And that's the hope we have. That's the kind of hope that we have, that all is going to be restored. All will be made new, partially even now, between his first and second comings, and fully one day at the return of the king, when what was begun will be brought to completion. So what that means then, as we go through life, we can have this sort of lens as we look at everything, everything. We can be optimistic, realist, realistic optimists. It means that while on the one hand we should be able to expect setbacks because this is a broken world and we are broken people, at the same time there ought to be signs of progress because he has come and these things are real. The fulfillment of Isaiah 53 has come embodied in Jesus. So what that means is as we set out in ministry endeavors just in this church, we ought to expect some good things to come through that and yet at the same time struggle in trying to work it out. Maybe it's childcare in your community groups. It's like that proverbial great problem to have. We have all these people. Now what do we do with them? We have a bit of that going on right now. Um, or, or your families. Or your marriage. Or your own personal stuff that nobody else but God knows. And you hardly do. Progress, setback, setback, progress. It's a mix. It's complex. But it's how we ought to understand that and expect that. We can afford to be and ought to be realistic optimists, optimistic realists. Because he has come. And what Matthew is saying in the midst of all this, again, this is why we're seeing this fulfillment statement in here in Matthew 8, is he's communicating again to it, look, this, that you need this. Whether you realize it at this point or not, you need this hope. Because this call is that hard. You need a hope this great because the hill you are to climb is that steep. You need to know that as you're going in. The call is demanding. Jesus would have us to weigh that as we follow him, which takes us 
Lastly, to this uh, third point where it becomes quite explicit, uh, not just the, this picture of discipleship and the hope of discipleship, but the cost, the cost of discipleship. And you see that in particular with these two men, these two men who both take the initiative and come to Jesus uh, and say a couple of things to him and then his response to each man. So first, uh, we see that there is something of a material cost in following Jesus. Um, let's look at verses 18 through 20, the first man. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now that's the, not just, that means the other side of the lake, okay, the, the, the Sea of Galilee. There's something on the, the northeast side. They're moving over away from that across the lake. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And what Jesus is saying here is, again, there is a material cost to following him. It requires us to be willing to give up the very basics, to be um, willing to forego and forsake what everyone around us says are essentials. That's what he's saying here. Um, the scribe, he comes and, and, and makes this statement about himself. The scribe, he's, he's a, he's a well-respected uh, religious authority. I won't get into all of that, but we'll just say he's, he's known and respected in his community for his piousness or piety. And he volunteers. That's one of the, you know, it's, it's rather unusual to see this in the Gospels. This guy steps forward and he volunteers. Sign me up. He's gone down and he's enlisted at the recruiter station. And, and he is a little too confident about himself. He is a little too eager. He is a bit too hasty. He, just be plain, he doesn't have a clue what he's signing on for. And you can see that in how Jesus responds to him. Jesus reads him. Jesus reads him and tells him exactly what he needs to hear. He calls him not to a vow of poverty. Some people have misread that and gone off the rails on this. That is not what he's... No, that's not it. It's not to a vow of poverty, but rather a, a willingness to live a life of, of, that's insecure, that, that's unsafe in the world's eyes, that's dangerous, that's, that's exposed according to the world's standards and maybe how we're used to thinking. That's what Jesus says. There's a material cost to following him. He doesn't stop there. Another man comes. And so there's another engagement, another quick dialogue here. So we pick up here in verses 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Here, um, what Jesus is, is saying is that with this, there's a relational cost that following him takes precedence over the most sacred social obligations. Uh, the first man was too quick. This man is too slow. The first man was too hasty. This man is too hesitant. 
he is a disciple. Now that word can be used in different ways. Apparently here Matthew means it in a rather loose definition, meaning he is following Jesus but at a distance, not ready to get too close yet. He is uh, checking Jesus out without being sold out for him. I can use that language. Um, now, possibly, regarding his father and what he says about that, possibly, we don't know, but a lot of commentators have weighed in at this point and said, you know, it's quite possible that his father wasn't even dead yet. That he could have been infirm, he could have been sick, he could have just, you know, really been quite advanced in age. It's also possible that he has died. But it's in the middle of the Jewish, at that time, an ancient practice of a two-stage burial process that could take up to a year. We don't know. And actually, just you know, trying to understand which one of those it was or some other third, fourth possibility gets us off in a rabbit trail because really that's not the issue. The issue is not the man's hesitancy per se, but Jesus' authority over him. Jesus is saying, it's not, despite what your cultural and personal inclinations are, it's not that family trumps faith. It's that faith trumps family. Which then leads to the stark, hard saying about the dead bearing their own dead, which in many ways, I mean, Jesus is not hesitant about saying things that just sound outlandish but need to be understood in their context. And I would argue this is very much akin to what he says in the Sermon on the Mount about um, gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand in the struggle against lust. It rattles the cage and gets our attention. There is a cost. There is a material cost to following Jesus. There is a relational cost with following Jesus. I read earlier uh, in the service from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Cost of Discipleship. It's worth knowing that Bonhoeffer was not a guy who just wrote about these things. I mean, he lived them. He, he knew very much of the things that he was, he was writing. His early stand against the Nazis was not just dangerous, but unpopular. Uh, he was willing over the course of his life, to be misunderstood and maligned for the stances that he took. When he, when he left Berlin to go to London, he had to in, endure the scorn of his fellow theologians. When he left the States to go back to Germany, he had to endure the mis, uh, the, 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 at least the insults, not insults, but the misunderstanding that that caused among his American friends. When he enlisted later in the German secret service, the Abwehr, to serve as a double agent, that then opened him up to all kinds of misunderstanding and charges and insults from family and friends. Now, it wasn't that he didn't care. It wasn't that he didn't care what others thought. That's not what we're being called to do, not care. That would be inhuman but rather he was willing to die to the love of the adoration, approval, and admiration of others. He was willing to die to that for the sake of Jesus and following him. It was the cost of discipleship.
in Bonhoeffer's case. Jesus' lordship, by definition, is an absolute one. He will brook no rivals. All others have to be, at best, distant second. It's interesting to note that even in the way Matthew records this for us, we aren't told how those two men responded, are we? We don't know how the first guy responded. We don't know how the second guy responded. Now, it's, it's almost as though like we're small children, right? And it's story time at bed, it's bedtime. And, and Matthew has sat us down and he's telling, in this case it's real. But it's, and, and we're like, Uncle Matthew, <laughs> finish the story. And he looks at us with a gleam in his eye and says, no, you finish the story. What are you going to do with this? How is this going to play itself out in your bio? I've given you a sampling of theirs. How is it going to play out in yours? This call. This call. What would that look like? I would venture to say just at least this one area would have to be in our decision making. How we go about doing the things and coming to the conclusions that we come to. You know, what are you, what am I trying to preserve and protect? Whether it's in the incidental daily decisions or the big picture. What am I trying to preserve and protect? What am I trying to avoid at all costs? How does my love of comfort and ease factor into that? How does my idolatrous affection for personal peace and affluence come into play here? How does my, my um, inordinate love of admiration and approval of others warp my decisions and choices and yours? You see? Jesus says, you're mine. You have been raised to serve. Me. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. It is a call, a real call, that is demanding, and we need to weigh it if we are to follow him. Now, I mentioned one captain as we began. I'm going to end with another allusion to another one, and this is not... Uh, not the Pacific exploration, but rather a bit south. This is uh, uh, Captain Ernest Shackleton. Some of you may be familiar with Shackleton. Uh, he was the leader of the 1914 to 1917 Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. The goal of this was to do the first land crossing of the Antarctic continent. And the plan was therein to send two ships down there. You only, usually only hear of one, but there were actually two involved. The Aurora... Which was to and, and the endurance was the other one, but the Aurora was to go down and, and um, anchor at one point at the landmass and of Antarctica and put out all these supply depots further inland, so that when the endurance anchored over way over here and the explorers were making their way across, they would have the supplies that they needed. That once they'd exhausted everything that they had, that there's no way they could carry enough, they would be able to then, you know, piggyback and use what they found from the Aurora. Well, the problem was a great, crazy, great. Amazing, failed plan. Uh, the endurance never reached her destination because she became stuck in ice. 
and not just stuck in ice, but that ice began to put the squeeze on the hull and crushed it and sunk it, marooning, I think it was 26 men. They're on the ice where they lived in these makeshift shelters for months. And finally the time came to, we've got to get out of here if we're going to survive this thing. So by lifeboats, they headed off to the inhospitable, uninhabited Elephant Island. Well, that's not enough. You're not done once you're at Elephant Island. Shackleton then takes a crew of five men and sets out on an 800-mile open-aired boat journey to South Georgia, a remote outpost, where from there, from there they could mount a rescue of the other men. No one was lost, by the way, in the midst of all this, if you don't count the dogs. It's interesting and worth noting, it's said that uh, Shackleton, before this journey began to recruit his crew, placed, it is said he placed this advertisement in a newspaper. It's hard to verify this, or historians differ on this point, but this is how the advertisement is said to have read, and if it did, it is certainly a case of truth in advertising. Because here's how it read. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success, Sir Ernest Shackleton. Well, when you think of how things played out, no one could say that they weren't warned. Because that's exactly what they got. And I think, you know, honestly, as a segue, just in, in, wrap this thing up, Jesus has done the same. We have, we have no grounds to say, I didn't know. Yeah, you do. He just told you. He's made it clear. He's given us this glorious, beautiful picture, this soaring hope, and this very clear cost as to what is entailed in following him and all of its demandingness. Oh, that we would hear him. Oh, that we would weigh this. That we would follow him and follow him well. Let's pray.